Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, hosting from Toronto. These days, it seems we're all frustrated with social media. Some believe that social media juggernauts are too permissive about hate speech and misinformation. Others claim the opposite. And many conservatives in particular were outraged when Twitter recently banned Donald Trump and internet service companies effectively shut down Parler, a right-wing Twitter competitor. But how do we fix this? Last week, I discussed the issue with Bill Ottman, the CEO of Minds.com, a small but growing social media network. And in this week's follow-up episode, I speak with Brian Amridge, a former team leader at Facebook who's in the midst of creating a social media network from scratch named Thoughtful. All those thought experiments we engage in about what we'd do if we could create a social media network, he's going through all that right now, and he's doing it in real life, not just as a thought experiment. In the interview that follows, you'll hear that the path to enlightened content moderation isn't just as simple as not censoring anything, because there do have to be some limits. The question is, how do you set those limits, and who gets to enforce them? Were you surprised it took Twitter this long to ban Donald Trump? No, I think one of the factors at play that people are actually not giving as much attention to right now is that this is happening in the context of a new administration coming in. And as much as I wish it weren't the case, that matters. The fact that the Biden administration is coming in is exactly the context under which it would be finally acceptable is probably how some of them think about it internally for them to ban Donald Trump. There's acceptable in terms of government policy or government response. There's also acceptable in terms of user base. Yeah. Do you think that entered into it? Um, on these issues, you always have to separate between a moral evaluation of what they're doing and a legal evaluation of what they're doing. And, and I'm saying that from the outside. I mean, from the outside, I have a very different perspective on how I judge what they're doing, which I continue to think. I continue to think that their moderation standards are intellectually toxic, hypocritical, really misguided, but simultaneously from the legal side, they're totally within their rights. And I, even though I totally disagree with them, I, I would defend their right to be toxic and hypocritical and misguided. So, I mean, it's from the outside, from the inside on some of these companies, it's really hard to say. Um, I can speak more to how this calculus would have worked two years ago at, at Facebook, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think the answer there is that it's, it's like I said, it's very much so influenced by the current administration and how much of a risk upsetting the current administration is going to pose to these companies. But there must be people in every room, at least occasionally, who say, look, we can't do this or we have to be careful about that because although our users are loyal, they're not infinitely loyal. Mm -hmm. Or, or do, do those conversations happen where policy gets discussed and people say, look, there's going to be a user revolt if we do this? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they think of it in terms of a user revolt, but I know that 
Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook was very consistent in framing these issues in terms of the, the reality is, and this is really the way he, he said it to employees, the reality is 50% of our user base disagrees with the majority of you, you being the employees. And we have to keep that in mind. And they're as much our users as anybody else. And that's just part of the context they're operating. And they do have to care about that to a certain extent. And I think the higher up you go in a company like Facebook, I can't speak to Twitter, but the higher up you go in a company like Facebook, the more deeply they actually care about that, the more the more thoughtful they are about the nature of the political diversity of their user base. Now, that's not to say that that's their number one priority. And I think that that's part of what you're seeing in, in their decisions uh, right now. Um, I think part of what you're seeing is that there are limits to what they're going to allow just on the basis of being respectful to 50% of their users. I, I think that they're willing to to really upset people if it goes far enough from their perspective. And I think that the events we saw in terms of storming the Capitol uh, went that far. I think it crossed a line for a lot of these companies to the point where they're they're, they are basically willing to say, look, I know this is 50% of our users, but we think this is right. And they don't think of it in terms of we have the right to do this, but they'll, they'll, they'll say things like we think this is right. And this is they'll couch it in terms of safety and things like that. So I think that there's that element of it. And I think there's another element of it, which is also, and again, this is going to be different from low level employees versus the executives, but there's an element of we don't think 50% of people are going to continue supporting Donald Trump after this happened, right? Or they're going to continue supporting this or that Republican politician after this happened. So I think that there's an anticipation of the Republicans losing some legitimacy after these events, which I think is true. That's part of the calculus here. A lot of times people lump Facebook and Twitter in together that strikes me maybe as a little bit unfair. I mean, cosmetically speaking, they're both run by these young, wealthy wonder kids. On the other hand, it sounds like what you're describing at Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg being fairly hard-headed about this kind of thing. Whereas at Twitter, and again, this is, you know, I've never met the guy, but the, the stereotype sometimes is a Jack, Jack Dorsey, I think his name is, being kind of like a little bit more flighty about this stuff. I don't know Jack Dorsey, but... Mark being hard-headed about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, Mark is generally hard-headed about anything that he has a strong perspective on. And honestly, that's to his credit. Uh, I think the degree to which he decides that he has a strong perspective on an issue and then plants a flag in the ground and saying, look, this is what we as a company are going to operate as ground truth. The degree to which he does that is the degree to which Facebook is stronger as a company. And I think it's actually necessary to to lead in that way, to have a vision. If I have any criticism of him on these issues, it's really that he isn't as strong as he should be when he does disagree with the employee base. And I think that's a marvelously complex issue for him. But I have a, a great deal of criticism for him on his willingness to stand up to his own employees, which I think has been really lacking over the last couple of years on these issues. A lot of the reporting that was done on Twitter's decision to ban Trump, there was often a line where they'd say Twitter's management presumably felt compelled to do this or else they'd face a staff revolt. 
And of course, that phrase gets thrown around. And we've seen there's some substance to it. You know, at Spotify, there there was this incipient staff revolt over Joe Rogan, which got snuffed out. Mm-hmm. But I've, I, I've never actually seen details reported of this so-called incipient staff revolt at Twitter. Theoretically, if a substantial number of employees did flee a place like Twitter or Facebook, could could these places be crippled if low and mid-level employees, if a lot of them just left? The reality of it is no. And part of it is because again, a company like Facebook is doing so much at once. Like it's really hard for people from the outside to understand how large this company is and how many projects going at once. And within those projects, how many experiments and features and things like that are being developed all at once. Like it is massive. It's almost like, you know, the Facebook application on for your phone is basically an operating system all on its own. It has many, many thousands of people working on things. And and I would argue, and I did argue for many years at Facebook that, you know, that creates a lack of focus. And a lot of that is actually really not essential, not the most important thing for them to be working on. You know, my perspective on this is no, you know, assuming you're not talking about your hundred most critical engineers, um, they are not all essential and you can reprioritize projects. You can put things back on the shelf to focus on what's most important if you do have even you know, thousands of people leave. Now, that's a problem from other perspectives, you know, including recruiting, which is you know one of the very top jobs of, of any of these executives to be looking at the long term on that. And is this a place where the very best people in the industry want to go work. And if you have thousands of people leaving, you're in a very dangerous place from that perspective. But from the perspective of being able to continue building the product, being able to, you know, from the engineering side, make sure that things are still standing and they're stable and they're running. No, I don't. I can't, again, I can't speak for Twitter on that. I don't, I think that they're, you know, they are a fraction of Facebook size, but at Facebook and at, certainly at a company like Google, which is even everything I'm saying goes, you know, 10x at Google, there is just so much that they're doing that is non-essential to what you'd consider the service that you know of as Facebook or Google that, that you know, they, they could cut 50% of their workforce and reprioritize it and it would still be running a lot of the way that you, you think of it running today. We're talking about Twitter last week and then suddenly we were talking about this place called Parler, mm-hmm. which doesn't exist anymore. And I think a lot of people hadn't even heard of Parler. In mm-hmm. fact, I, I had heard of Gab, which had a, a fairly strong right-wing orientation and presented itself as a right-wing free speech alternative to Twitter. Uh, I had never even heard of Parler till, till, <laughs> till it got shut down. Yeah. How closely have you been following the rise of secondary social media networks? You had Gab and Parler, which had a, a right-wing user base, and in the case of Gab, I think still has it. Uh, and then you have something smaller called Minds, which mm-hmm. is it's more of like kind of a cryptocurrency type community, sort of a niche community. Yeah. How much has the market developed for for niche social media networks like that? I've seen them announced with some fanfare and people like their features, but then I don't hear that much about them anymore. Well, I, I followed it very closely because, you know, it's it's been almost two years, I think, since you and I talked on this podcast. And pretty much every one of those days, I've been working on something that will eventually be known in this space, but definitely not in the form uh, that any of the current alternative social media platforms exist in. So I, I followed it very closely. 
if I thought any of those were really working on the right issues and had the right epistemological approach in particular, their approach to, to how they promote content and how they how they moderate, if at all, uh, if I thought any of them were honestly worth associating with, I wouldn't be doing the work that I've been doing for a while now. This episode of the Quillette Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare, the online learning community that offers you the chance to learn new skills in a more structured and supportive way than you can get from just watching how-to videos on YouTube. None of us really know what 2021 will bring, but if you want to make the most of it, whatever it brings, consider joining up at Skillshare to develop your talent, learn new skills, and make yourself more marketable. If you surf the Skillshare site, you'll find that a lot of the most popular topics involve exploring your creative side, such as graphic design, logos and branding, photography, illustration, and creative writing. But you'll also find a lot of stuff that's more off the beaten path. For instance, I've spent a lot of time on Skillshare trying to get better at chess, and I love the fact that all of the material is action-oriented. There's always a project or a goal, and you're part of a larger group of other Skillshare members supporting you as you learn the material. Explore your creative side at Skillshare.com slash Quillette. That's Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a free trial of Skillshare's premium membership. Thank you to Skillshare for supporting our podcast. And now back to our show. For me, when I looked at Gab, I'm not even sure it was Gab's fault, or maybe it was, but you had this effect where like all the people who got kicked off Twitter would go to Gab. And so as a result, you had this self-selection issue where I, I, I spent a day on Gab and it was just kind of like there was a lot of right wing cranks. Right. Because it's sort of a dumpster fire. And, and I'm not even sure how much of that was their fault. So well, much no, as it well, was like if, if you took every person in my neighborhood who who got booted off a social network and put them on a social network. It would, it would be a really crappy social network because it would just be all weird people. Right? It would be all weird people. And and I think the thing is like, again, I'm going to come from a really harsh perspective here because I'm working in this industry. I spent a long time here. Uh, I'm coming from the perspective of you know every two months I saw a competitor to Facebook crop up and fail. So I'm coming from that perspective of really, really understanding uh, how hard it is to do this right and to do it well. And the reality is like, is it their fault? Yes, it is their fault. Because anybody who's really serious about this can anticipate that that's going to happen. I mean, if you frame your product and your, you know, your reason for being as a product is to be a free speech version of Twitter or a free speech version of, of Facebook or a, a right wing, a right wing accepting version of these things. If you frame the product that way, you get what you ask for, basically, because there is a as as critical as I am of how Twitter and Facebook moderate content, and I you know I I challenge you to find anybody who's more critical of it than I am. Uh, as critical as I am, I understand why they have moderation standards, and I understand. And the and the answer is because essentially they optimize for showing you the most engaging slash popular content. And if you don't have moderation standards and you just sort of say, okay, anybody can post anything here, but hey, we're actually just going to copy how Facebook and Twitter work and we're just going to rank things by popularity, it will become a cesspool. It will be a place where conspiracy theories and clickbait and sensationalism and just all sorts of junk rise to the top because that stuff is more engaging. It is going to be more popular. And so 
to me, I, you know, this is the, the core of why I don't, I don't take many of these alternatives very seriously. And I, I criticize them in saying, I'm not sure how seriously they take the problem that they're working on, because you can't just copy the products that are built to have moderation standards, chop off the moderation standards and think it's going to work. Like it's going to become a disaster. It's going to become a dumpster fire. And that's exactly what we see on these platforms. So, you know, and so and that that's all just from a product perspective. None of that is from a strategic perspective, because I mean there are reasons that this is not the right way to grow a platform. These are there are reasons this is predictably going to result in something like Amazon cutting off AWS and then the site going dark. I mean, all of this is predictable from a strategic perspective. So you don't want to build a business whose essential framing is a free speech version of X. Uh, it's not a sufficiently differentiated product. It's not a wise product strategy uh, in terms of getting off the ground. And it, it necessarily is only going to attract people uh, who are ostracized or banned from other platforms, which is, you know, it's again, it's not how you want to build any community. It's going to result in the, the cesspools and the, the dumpster fires that you see. Given how difficult it is to start an alternative social media network, and it sounds like you you could write an encyclopedia of mistakes that are made in, in this regard. I, I actually find it surprising Twitter hasn't been more aggressive with muzzling voices it doesn't like because there's a certain genius to what it's done because it's shut down just enough accounts so that people like me, I mean, I grumble about it, but I stay on it. Mm-hmm. So they, they haven't been so draconian that, that folks like me leave, but they... <laughs> they cut out just enough accounts that there's this critical mass of people who go to a place like Parler, and then they create a dumpster fire, as you call it. Mm-hmm. And then people at Twitter could say, well, see, look, right. look what happens when these people are allowed to populate your social media service, this kind of hate speech, but it's a good thing that we're here to protect you. Like, they could actually be more aggressive, and I'd probably stick around. Yeah. So everyone criticizes them, and I guess we're criticizing them more because of the Trump thing but they kind of know what they're doing. Boy, I mean, they know what they're doing even much more so <laughs> than what you just alluded to. Uh, but but also, I don't think, you know, they're not sitting in their conference rooms in San Francisco and thinking about like, oh, how far can we push this before, before you know, the reasonable people leave? Again, I, I think that they're, the way that they look at what should people be allowed to see is really unhealthy and i think it's infantilizing i just i think it's i think it's bad for the world in, in, a, in a lot of ways on the other hand i know that that perspective is not coming from a place of like you know cynically slowly trying to you know boil the water until all the conservatives leave that's not that's not how they're thinking about this i mean they're thinking about it from the perspective like they honest to goodness think that the things that they're banning are totally unacceptable. Which in some cases they are. Which in some in some cases they are. That doesn't mean that they're not hypocritical about it. It doesn't mean that they're not they don't they're not hugely cognitively dissonant about the same issues on you know within their tribe, which they are. But they're definitely not. It's definitely not a conspiracy. I mean, it's like a th- these companies are honestly moving in a direction that they think, from what I consider a very narrow perspective to be best for the mission of their company and the mission of the the product. Now, 
and this is, you know, this is what markets are for, though. I mean, this stuff takes time because, you know, part of what I just kind of kind of got at before is like it's really, really complicated and hard to build an alternative here. And it takes quite a bit more than just copying and pasting the platform, but deleting the content policy to do something meaningful here. So it does take time. It's going to take longer than I think anybody wants it to. But the market does eventually solve this because the more seriously, the more serious these issues become, uh, the more plausible it becomes for people to actually innovate and do something that's better enough to be worth moving off. And, th and that is the threshold. The way to think about this just from a business perspective is whatever alternative that may or is trying to you know, get your attention in, in competing with Facebook and Twitter, whatever that is, it's got to be 10 times better at what it's claiming to do than Facebook and Twitter is. And I don't mean in terms of, oh, you're allowed here, but you're not allowed there. That's not it. That's not sufficient. The actual value delivered to you as a user has got to be 10 times better uh, because of the network effects of existing platforms. And that is a, it is a huge challenge, and it's very difficult to think through uh, how do you build something that's 10 times better than these services that are you know, they're unbelievably popular for very good reason. <laughs> and yet here you are, uh, apparently up to the challenge. Let's say you or somebody like you succeeds in, in building a, a social media network that attracts millions or even billions of people. Mm -hmm. You're going to need staff. And one problem I think you've alluded to obliquely at Facebook, when you're recruiting staff, even if you are not seeking a political environment, the kind of people who you're hiring for a digital social media company, anything in Silicon Valley, I mean, even if you're just, you're building circuit boards or something like that, it tends to be highly educated people who come from coastal universities, and they tend to be extremely liberal. H how do you solve that problem? Is it even somebody like you, I'm guessing yep. you're, you're not setting out to build a highly politicized organization, you're still going to need people to, who, who are knowledgeable and who are excellent in their fields and presumably no. come from these really good universities. And at the end of the day, they're probably going to be disproportionately highly progressive. How do you prevent that from, from taking root as a political subculture, which then becomes unrepresentative of your customer base, which looks more like the rest of America? Yeah. So there are two, two pieces to this. And I, I, I sort of hinted at when I was talking about the size of Facebook and how you just you just could not believe how many people work on this stuff. Part one is I, I do not believe these companies need to be as big as they are. And that's because I think that they waste 90% of the work that they do. What you're seeing as a user of Facebook is maybe 5 to 10% of what's actually built. That, that's, that's mostly because, to be very frank about it, the product people who work at Facebook in particular, they're not terrifically good. They do not think the way Apple thinks. You know, they, they don't hire people who have deep understandings of social psychology. They don't hire people that are are really thinking in terms of the mission of the company anymore. I mean, they're, they're hiring people who are maybe the best in their field, but not super well aligned with the mission, not able to articulate and project from where the company is to where it ought to go. And what that really you know, boils down to is I don't think that you need a company that is nearly as big as these companies uh, to be as successful 
as they are. I think, you know, this is sort of, you know, for people in Silicon Valley, if you know the differences in, in hiring practices for a company like Netflix versus Google or Facebook, this is essentially it. I mean, Netflix is the kind of company that they only hire highly experienced senior engineers who are sort of in the, you know, the top 5%. And as a result, you know, there's a whole bunch of cultural stuff that follows from that, but they just hire way, way less. They pay way, way more, uh, which is part of how you get those people, but they hire way, way less. So part of it is I am convinced from having seen how this works at Facebook that when you hire people that have the right mix of product thinking and being the very best in their field, you can do it with 10% of the workforce that some of these companies do. So that's, that's, that's a piece of it. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette podcast. There are organizations I've heard of in Silicon Valley, Bitcoin organizations. The example is Coinbase. The head of Coinbase got into trouble because he actually sent out a memo. This was a couple of months ago. Yeah, I remember this. Saying, hey, look, we're, we're not going to be a political organization. We're going to get to our core mission. He sent out the kind of memo that would have been common sense like 10 years ago. Yeah, it was actually a good memo. It was a great memo. But I'm guessing that if you're running a Bitcoin organization, you don't have 5,000 people. You don't have content moderators and stuff like that. You probably have a small core of fairly elite workers, but he's, he ran into that problem too. Yeah, I mean... Bitcoin is, uh, you know, I can't speak for him. I don't really know what happened at Coinbase after that. I think part of it is when you're running these kinds of organizations, you're always playing the long game. And the truth is, if you are kowtowing to your employees on such basic perspectives on what you're here to do, how we should work, what's important to us as a company and, and, and how should we be thinking as a team? If you're kowtowing to your employees on things as fundamental as that, you're screwed. You know, the difference between those people leaving on their own accord and you kowtowing them to them and then, you know, a couple of years later, uh, you know, that you end up in a situation like Facebook is in where it's actually just the, the sheer number of these people is an overwhelming problem that creates cultural issues. Is Google past the point of no return on that issue? Yeah, I think that they are. A huge part of that, though, is because Google has such 
in my view, I think they have really poor executive leadership on these issues. I think that they, as much as they can, they try to appease people. They try to be pretty hands off about it. They try to be uninvolved with it. They take a stand every once in a while, but they, if you were to imagine like how Steve Jobs would be handling some of these issues, for example, I mean, it, it would just be completely night and day from the kind of fence sitting that most of these executives are doing as opposed to actually having a perspective and saying, look, this is what we're here as a company to do. This is what we believe. We know in the long term that if you disagree with that, you're going to be unhappy and we're going to be unhappy. So there's the door. Is part of the problem that the kind of conflict resolution techniques that work with a small group of highly motivated, high trust, founding team individuals in a garage do not work among 20,000 strangers working in a corporate park out yeah. in, in California. Like, you know, you can be very hands-off. It's just like a dozen guys who've all known each other since high school because there's a lot of trust. Well, I, I think that that's part of it. And that's part of why, uh, you know, a foundational perspective I have on this stuff is that these companies shouldn't be this big. You know, I when I was at Facebook, I was there from I think when I joined, there were maybe a thousand people. And then when I left, there were well over 35,000 people. And what I can tell you is e even at a thousand people, Facebook could do this really well. It could have these sort of, you know, high trust, very hands off, very mission driven, very mission driven ability to make decisions because you know, the people that you're working with um, are all here for the same reason. They have, they share all of the you know, enough of the the same values in order to be able to talk about this stuff. Um, and if you, you can do that with a thousand people, can you do that with 30,000 people? No, I don't think so. But just, just to go back to one of the things I was saying a little bit earlier. So I think, you know, part of what makes you, you capable of building an organization that's not going to, to fall apart in sort of a partisan mess or, or, or having difficulty hiring people because it is, you know, unavoidably partisan. Part of it is just hiring better, fewer people. Uh, but the other piece of it is is really framing the mission of your company correctly. I don't view what we're working on at Thoughtful, uh, which is the name of my company. Uh, I don't view what we're doing in a partisan way, and it would be very difficult for anybody looking at what we're doing to view it in a partisan way. And this is part of what I mean by if you're really seriously contending with the problem of what is wrong with social media today as it relates to people sharing ideas, if you're really contending with that, it's not a partisan issue. As I said earlier, it's an epistemological issue. It's an issue of how we know what's true and the degree to which the degree to which our tools help us figure out what's true. And everybody is struggling with this today on the left, on the right, in the center. I mean, I think the spectrum is nonsense in a lot of ways, but everybody is struggling with this because we sort of have this fire hose of information and misinformation on the internet. And our tools really have not evolved to help us figure out what's true. And even that perspective of, oh, you know, the thing that our tools are supposed to be doing is, is helping us as users figure out what's true. That would be something like the uniting perspective that my company would have. And the kind of people that we're recruiting are not going to be people who are looking at this and saying, oh, this is a place for people on the right or people on the left. 
No, it, it would be, the kind of people we're recruiting are people who look at this and say, we need better tools for individuals to figure out what's true, because that's how people figure out what's true for themselves. But that that philosophy only makes sense to somebody who doesn't believe that the truth has already been revealed in a quasi-religious way, and that those who disagree are are, <laughs> are heretics. And I think we all know we all know a few people like that, maybe on both sides of the political spectrum. There's an interesting sort of chain reaction here where like a company gets big, when it gets big, there's lower levels of trust. And when there's lower levels of trust, things can become more politicized because people lose track of the original mission and people come in and they're able to co-opt certain subcultures within the company. You've talked about maybe keeping an organization smaller to avoid that issue. Is part of that in the context of social media, does that mean just sticking to core functions. And I'm looking here at Facebook. You talked about all the thousands of people who joined Facebook. When I go on my Facebook app, it, it wants me to use it as a phone. At one point, introduced some kind of cryptocurrency, I think last year. I don't know where that went. It wants me to do video conferencing. It, there's like a lot of stuff going on. Do you think if you could roll back the clock 10 or 15 years at Facebook, and I guess you would have the chance to do that now if you're starting a new social media network, where you just say, this is what we're going to do you know, we're a pizza restaurant, we're not going to serve hamburgers, you're just going to limit the number of functions you have? Is, is that part of the solution? That's a huge part of the solution. I mean, a, a huge part of why Facebook has is like an operating system. And, you know, you could actually buy movie tickets in, in Facebook. Most people don't know that. And thank God they don't know that. But you can. Uh, a huge part of why that kind of thing is possible is because of a lack of product leadership uh, from the executive team at Facebook, and it comes from a you know, a systematic lack of valuing strong product thinkers, people who can take the mission of the company, uh, have their own vision, and actually run with it. People who can actually project forward that way and rally teams around a positive vision um, of what the product can be. They they have systematically not valued that correctly in the company uh, in 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 almost every way you could possibly imagine, and the result of that is that you have a thousand people, or you know these days thirty five thousand people throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks, and essentially that that's what determines what ships. You know it's not any sort of coherent singular vision for here's where. Facebook, the network is going over the next 10 years, it's extremely decentralized. Uh, it's extremely data-driven rather than data-informed, which is to say they're looking at things like, you know, oh, we'll, we'll ship this if it's good for engagement. We'll ship this if it's good for how much time people are spending on our services. We'll ship this if it's good for this or that metric. And they're much more interested in articulating and framing things in those terms rather than in terms of the vision for the product and the vision for the future of social media. So they don't value very much um, the visionaries, and they don't have many of them, to be honest. I mean, the, the best product people I know in the company have all left since I joined. And if I may ask, where have they gone? All over the place. I mean, a, a bunch of them have gone to, to create their own ventures. A bunch of them have gone to, to Apple. One of the very best ones I know He's basically just retired. You know, he's I think he's forty something years old and just decided enough was enough. He doesn't 
He doesn't want to work anymore. I can't empathize with that path personally, but some of the very best people, they're in a financial position to do something like that. So it's it's something they've done. A lot of the answers is, is they've they've done their own thing, startups and things like that. And now a message from another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show. If you're like me, you like to shake up your podcast repertoire every now and again. In the run-up to the U.S. election, I was listening to a lot of political stuff, but now I'm looking for something new. And there's a reason Jordan Harbinger's podcast caught my eye and was named a top podcast by Apple in 2018. It's because Harbinger, a Wall Street lawyer turned podcaster, focuses on real human beings and real human issues. Recent episodes have brought listeners issues like should a cheater get a second chance and how to protect yourself from psychopaths. And I dare you not to listen to another episode called Saying Sayonara to Sisters Swindling Sweetie. If this sounds interesting to you, look up The Jordan Harbinger Show wherever you listen to podcasts. That's H-A-R-B like Bob, I-N-G-E-R. And now back to our Quillette podcast. Brian Amridge, thank you so much for being on the Quillette podcast. Brian is formerly a manager at Facebook in the groups division. I think I'm getting that right. Yes. Yeah, so I, I spent the last year of my time at groups, but prior to that, I had started the, the, the team that was more or less responsible for the overall interface of Facebook. And when your new product launches, by that time, you're going to be like the new Zuckerberg. You're going to make time for us and come back on the podcast, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I mean, that would be that would be super cool. But for folks who do want to follow along with what we're doing, um, we actually do have the product available on an invite only basis. So if you want to join the waiting list, uh, you're welcome to do so. You can head over to uh, thoughtful.community. Thoughtful.community. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm here to say that the link works and it didn't direct me to some any kind of Russian site. So <laughs> it, it checks out. As you can see, we use only the highest grade internet security protocols at Quillette. That's right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely, gentlemen. It's great to talk to you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.